Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, I don't know what to say, man. What what just happened? I'm exhausted, Josh. I don't know about you, but man, that was a lot. It was it was fun though. It was bonkers. Definitely, yeah. That, I don't think we've ever seen a deadline like that. That's pretty much the consensus between the two of us, between fans, between a lot of the bigger reporters, the Ken Rosenthal's, Jeff Passons. They're all kind of on the on the same page on this. That was insanity, and I don't think anybody really saw it coming like that. Yeah, you know, and I thought it kind of peaked Thursday night with the Scherzer deal, but man, there was more insanity on Friday as well, which made it seem like, you know how like it was sometimes you watch a fireworks show and you think, oh, that's the grand finale, and then there's more. You know? Exactly. Like, oh, that's the finale. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, so given all that we have seen in the last week or so, and especially the last few days, uh, we're not going to have time to get to every single trade on this podcast. Uh, there is a recap that I, uh, or a roundup, excuse me, that I was adding to um, as, as deals came through, and that is completely up to date now, completely finished. So there's a Roundup article on the site with every single deal, with the values for all of them, with a breakdown of what's going on in all of them. So that if there are some of those minor deals that we t- aren't able to get to today, um, you'll find them there, you'll find our breakdowns there, and you'll see how the model, what the model thought of them there. Uh, so that will, of course, be linked in the episode uh, show notes. Additionally, there is an article that John wrote um, about kind of our key takeaways from the deadline as far as a, a model perspective, how we did, that sort of thing, um, and some some tweaks we might look at for the future. We will be covering that pretty in-depth on this episode, but I'll also link to that article, of course. Um, but before we get too far into any of that, um, this is going to be a bit more of an unstructured episode. We're going to kind of go through that um, article and then make sure we touch on all of the key trades, um, the biggest names and everything. But before we get too far into that, I just want to start by thanking all of you guys. This has been our biggest trade deadline by far, and, and we kind of expected it. You know, we've had steady, pretty steady growth every year that we've done it, and the model has improved every year that we've done it. But this year was bonkers. We got so much more support on Twitter. We had some great support during our live streams, even even despite some technical issues there. Um, the podcast has been doing better than ever, and we've got so much positive feedback, some good criticism that we're definitely taking into account and and might make some adjustments in the future based off of, but really it's been overwhelmingly positive and I want to thank you guys all for making this a really, really fun week for me. Just to pile onto that, yes, absolutely. Everything you said squared. Thank you, everybody, for, for joining us and following us and staying with us. You know, there are some guys, and I shouldn't assume gender here, but there's some people who have been with us since we launched. And they're like, oh, this is a cool idea. And they've stuck with us through, you know, some rough patches and the pandemic and then the, the better and better. But, you know, I just want to call out to those guys, JMF and Nodin and some of the guys that have been with us from the very beginning. Uh, hats off to you guys as well. Right. And that, that goes for on the site, that goes for on Twitter as well. And saw about some replies in this past week from some people saying like, yeah, I found you guys. I just found you guys this week and I love it. And I've found, I've seen some uh, replies from people saying, oh, I've been here for two years and you guys just keep getting better and better. I'm glad more people are seeing the site now. And I, it's all just fantastic. It's so great to hear that our, our hard work that, and it was a lot of hard work this month, especially, um, but it's great to hear that our hard work is paying off. Yeah, indeed. And we're not trying to be, you know, know, back patters or attention Mm -hmm. seekers here. We're just saying, yeah, thank you guys, because it's growing and we're happy to have you. Exactly. So that being said, let's get into this this 
mess of a trade deadline, this beautiful mess that we uh, that we've come out on the other side of at this point now that the dust has settled. So as I mentioned, John wrote an article with five observations from the deadline, kind of our key takeaways. Before we get into those, uh, do you want to just quickly touch on the model performance, both this deadline as well as um, to date since we launched the site? Yeah, so um, we log every trade. We also log every DFA. We try to log as many transactions as possible as a check on our model to keep us honest, and we're very public about it. We publish on Twitter, Josh does most of that, and we publish on the site. So, you know, I always try to put up a featured trade whenever it, it, it happens. So so in other words, reality is our, is our benchmark here. And so how did we do against reality? Um, so there were 55 deals in total of those we're not going to count four of them because we had some human error or late information. So we'll just give those a mulligan. So the ones that we counted, there's 51 of those, 46 of those were accepted by a model for this. So that's 90.2% of them did in just this deadline alone. Um, since we've been tracking these since August of 2019, we've tracked 250 trades of those 238 have been accepted by our model. And that's a success rate of 95.2. Our margin of error, average margin of error is 1.7. So we feel like things are going well if you buy those numbers and you're happy to audit us and check us. We're trying to be as transparent as possible, but we think it's going well. Yeah, and that those numbers since since the beginning are kind of amazing to me just because of the growing pains that we know we have gone through. I mean, when we started this thing out, we didn't really have a great way to handle post prospect guys uh the luis urias trade was a disaster for us <laughs> um it was we had it as an overwhelming overpay uh by san diego when they traded luis urias for trent grisham and a couple other names involved in there zach davies i think uh but we had that as what are you guys doing san diego and of course <laughs> we've we've all seen what happened trent grisham is a star luis urias is is a fine major league player but he's we we hadn't figured out yet how to account for former top prospects that just haven't gotten it done at the big league level have fallen out of favor. So we didn't have that at all at the beginning there. And then there are a handful of other um, adjustments we've had to make, you know, positional adjustments for second baseman, um, a lot of tweaking to how we handle prospects and tweaking to how we handle relievers. There's been a whole lot of change over this period. So it's remarkable that, <laughs> in my opinion, at least, and, and this maybe this is a little bit of patting our own backs, but it's more about the model itself. It's remarkable that since we started this thing, we have had such a high success rate given a lot of the mistakes we made early on and some of the things we still recognize that we need to tweak uh, today. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the overarching point is we're, we're students of the market. We're trying to be humble about it. We don't want to say we're great and just leave it at that. No, that's the opposite. No, we want to keep getting better. And what did we learn this time? And that's part of our observations here. Um, you know, we're just chasing, you know, what the teams know. We're never going to know as much as the teams do. They have all kinds of inside information that we don't. We're doing this just with public information. We're doing this with, you know, numbers you find on public websites and public prospect evaluators. And we're putting those together in a model and seeing how close we get and seeing if we can match what, what the teams do. It's never going to be perfect, but we feel like we're getting pretty close. And I will add that, you know, 250 trades, a lot of those are admittedly some of those minor trades, whether it's a yeah. DFA for cash considerations or some mid-tier rental reliever for a double-A relief prospect or whatever. And those are, you know, those are generally pretty easy. But this deadline especially, we hit the nail on the head on a lot of the bigger deals. Yeah. I mean, there, there were a couple that missed that we will get into uh, for, for various reasons, for some weird reasons as well. Um, but some of the big ones this deadline, Scherzer-Turner, we were nearly perfect on. 
uh, Chris Bryant, Javier Baez, uh, Kyle Gibson, the Ian Kennedy trade, Anthony Rizzo. The, we hit the nail on the head on a lot. Excuse me. I guess I should say the model <laughs> hit the nail <laughs> on the head on those really, really big ones. And though, especially especially that Scherzer-Turner one, that one felt really good. The, the email yeah. chain between John and I as that one broke was, oh my goodness, we just did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I felt really good about that one too. Yeah. And, and I think we got a lot of uh, um, nice response on that one too. But, you know, some of the meeting one, medium ones as well, Peterson, Schwarber, Escobar, I think was dead on. Mm-hmm. Tyler Tyler Anderson twice, you know, was, was, <laughs> was matched. The Gomes-Harrison trade, was, I'm getting smaller and smaller here, but you get yeah. We did a lot of them, and we got a lot of them right. And then we were close-ish on, you know, there were some overpays and some underpays. So, you know, a little bit stretched, but still accepted by our model. The Joey Gallo trade, the Graveman trade, uh, Duval, Norris, so- Soler, Heaney, Lester Hand. So those ones, okay, you know, we were a little... A, you know a little bit more but but not unreasonable so um they weren't the dead on ones but they were in the ballpark mm-hmm. and then we did have a handful of misses as, as we mentioned um yeah. the great kimbrel trade is the biggest one we will be getting in in depth on that in in this episode we have a lot to talk about about that one yeah um, diego castillo as well to a lesser extent uh that, that's kind of related to the kimbrel stuff we're going to be talking about relievers in this in this episode and just kind of our general musing on what's going on on the relief market and why some deals are working really well and some aren't um, adam frazier which we did discuss on our monday live stream and kind of went into why we don't necessarily think we were super off on that and it might have been more of just a preller did preller again uh, Starling Marte, which we kind of felt was more of, we, we might not have even been that wrong on. It's just Jesus yeah. very, very difficult to value because maybe he's a falling knife or maybe he he's just yeah. having a having a rough season and, and there's still a whole lot left in the tank. It's really hard to judge that. Yeah. And then um, in the article here, John has Richard Rodriguez listed, but I think that was accepted just as a moderate or major overpay, but that was not very close on the values. And, and we will get into that one as well when we talk about relievers. Yeah, and just for the record, the ones, the four that we are not counting, um, but would have been accepted had we counted them, were uh, Jose Barrios, which was an overpay, but with the adjustment that came in late, it would have been accepted by our model. Um, and then uh, Jordan Luplo, Miles Straw, and Nelson Cruz were also, you know, uh, a couple of things we we um, were miscoded there. So those would have been accepted as well. So, but we're not giving our, ourselves credit for those because that's a mulligan. So. Shall so we let's get, get in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's kind of the the model update as far as things go, and, and now we can kind of get into some of the more general trends we saw, and through some of those general trends, we will talk about some of the bigger deals in here. So I'll I'll let John go ahead and get started. It's his article. Okay. So the first observation was it was a seller's market for good starting pitching. Now that's no surprise to no one, right? Because you know, and I had written an article earlier how the starting pitching market is in shambles, and the, the context for this is. A lot of contenders had holes in their rotation, and you can understand why, because we're coming off a pandemic year, so pitchers are being forced to throw more innings after not throwing much last year. A lot of injuries have been happening. Um, So, you know, there's a desperate demand for not only any starting pitching, but good starting pitching in particular. so, so there was a seller's market there, and that's also why you know the Twins weren't sure they were going to trade Jose Barrios, but when they saw the opportunity, I, I I think they were right to to jump in there, and they did get a nice overpay for that. So it was no surprise. Um, the interestingly, you know, we were pretty close on the trade on the uh, Max Scherzer Trey Turner uh, deal, 
but we'd already priced in a big overpay for Max Scherzer because he's elite, obviously. So in a way, that one didn't surprise us. We weren't sure to, if we could assume a huge overpay for Barrios because he's kind of a notch below. He's good, but not great. But nonetheless, because of the supply and demand factors, yeah, he went he went for an overpay. Uh, you know, the Twins did a, a very nice job there getting uh, what they got. But interestingly, the non the, the the tier below that were pretty much fair deals. Uh, the Kyle Gibson deal, you know, the Rangers had to kind of stretch a little bit to get their the prospect that they wanted, Spencer Howard. They threw in Ian Kennedy, they threw in Hans Kraus, they threw in Cash, and then they got their guy. You know, so that was pretty. That was actually a fair deal. Tyler Anderson back in starter, that's fair deal. Um, so you know, all the rest we saw, you know, were pretty fair. So it was just the seller's market for the good ones that I noticed. Yeah, and specifically there with kind of the Scherzer-Barrios comparison, I think it is kind of apples and oranges. And you, you've talked a lot about why Scherzer was so difficult to trade for. You wrote a whole article about it. But I think that especially became pretty apparent between his no-trade clause. How many teams were actually – how many teams actually had a shot to trade for Max Scherzer? It sounded like it was the Padres, the Dodgers, maybe the Giants, but I don't think they wanted to push as many chips in necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um there were reports that an AL East team made a decent offer, but who knows if he would have accepted it to go there. He did say that he preferred the West Coast. Um, so so let's say there's four teams, it sounds like, that were actually in on Max Scherzer entirely. Well, there were at least half a dozen in on Jose Barrios, because after, after Scherzer went to the Dodgers, you know, the Padres, very interested in Barrios. Um, the Rays had some interest. The Blue Jays obviously ended up getting him. They would have had no chance at Scherzer. He's not going to Canada. Uh, <laughs> the Yankees had some interest. Uh, there, were, there were a couple other teams right now that I'm blanking on a little bit, but there was a bigger market for Brios by far, and that leads to a bidding war. Plus, Scherzer was already gone, and there, like you mentioned, there's such a big gap between Brios and that next level of Kyle Gibson, Tyler Anderson, etc. Uh, even John Gray, if if the Rockies had made him available, which we'll, we'll get into their strange deadline a little later in the show. <laughs> but there was just such a market for Barrios that really the twins got an offer that they couldn't refuse. And that's something that you, you kind of, that's probably oversaid <laughs> that phrase that, Oh, they got an offer. They couldn't refuse a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could have refused it. You could have held out for something better, whatever. But I, I, I do strongly believe the twins did not come into this week with the intent of trading Jose Barrios. And then when extension talks with Buxton weren't very successful, Maybe they were leaning a little bit more toward Barrios, but still not all in on it. And then as soon as they saw what they could get, it's like, okay, we cannot, <laughs> we can't live with ourselves if we hang on to this guy right yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we thought the Twins, you know, maybe we're just taking a pause in this year and then we would be right back to competing this year. Maybe just had a lot of bad luck because mm-hmm. uh, that team this year wasn't all that different from the team that competed last year. So, and that happens sometimes. So you figured, okay, well, they don't have to trade Barrios. They could just, you know, keep him and go for it again next year. But man, they got a they got a really good offer. And so they look at the bigger picture and think, man, we can get Austin Martin here and Simeon Woods Richardson could potentially be a, a guy who could replace him in a year or two. So yeah, <laughs> let's go for it. I do want to point out one more thing that I saw um, on Twitter that maybe should have warranted a slight boost, a slight like subjective after the fact boost in his value from us. Mm. Jose Brios is incredibly durable. He, he hasn't is, right. he has not missed a start since his rookie year. And right. in a market where as you mentioned, pitcher injuries all over the place, especially after the pandemic shortened season ramping back up to a full year, 
that's got a lot of value. And I think I think the Blue Jays know they're not getting an ace ace. He's not a number one necessarily. He hasn't quite shown that consistency. But they're getting a guy who is going to really be stable in that rotation and they don't necessarily have one of those guys. I mean, Robbie Ray, not the most consistent guy. Hinjin Ryu has had plenty of injuries there. It's they they got a rock in in their rotation now yeah. and they didn't have one of those before. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Yeah. So, and again, there just wasn't much else available, so everybody wanted them. Okay. Observation number 2, we've been saying this for a while, but now it's super duper clear. The market hates second basemen. And I'm talking not just like, you know, static second baseman, that's all they play, but like guys, you know, play a little left field. We're talking Adam Frazier here. Um, you know, we missed on Adam Frazier because we were being conservative about, you know, the discount, the positional adjustment. We had him, we figured he would go like, oh, let's try, you know, we, we had seen early on, in, you know, we talked earlier about how our model has been evolving and we noticed this pattern a couple of years ago saying, the second baseman are going a little lower than, than they should be on paper. So we started with 10. Nope. Started and went to 20. And but then a guy like Fraser who can play left field, who's having a great year, you think, okay, 20. That seems, you know, at least I thought that. But no. <laughs> he went for 50% lower than, you know, um, than market value. If if we want to match those up and we think everything else is 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 roughly in line and having thought about it for a while, I think so. Because the other data points we're seeing, Cesar Hernandez is 50% below market value. Oh, in the offseason, Colton Wong went for 50% market value. Whit Merrifield did not get traded. Dayton Moore said, oh, get traded. Dayton Moore said, oh, you know, we're going to see what we can get for him. We think they didn't get an offer nearly close to what they thought they could to make it worthwhile to trade him. So that's another, we don't know how much those offers were, but it's just another sort of psychological data point that second baseman, even guys who can play a little bit outfield as well, are really not being valued at all by the market. And so now we've got that message loud and clear, and we're going to make some adjustments as we go forward. Yeah, I'm, it's scary to go all the way down to 50%. Like, I know. How, how, we already, there already is a little tiny bit of that kind of factored into, into war, correct? Into the positional defensive right. adjustments there for war. Right. But, Oh man, that's so scary to just say this guy is worth half as much as he would be if he played a different position. But I mean, that's it's what the market's saying, and like we said at kind of the top of this episode, we are listening. We're students of the market. We have to listen to what the teams are doing. We don't think we're smarter than them, and so if they're saying that, yeah, second basemen don't aren't valuable at all. They're they're worth half as much as as they would be otherwise. Then we kind of have to listen and and agree with them. Yeah. Um, and, and I'd kind of at this point. Maybe we'd rather overcorrect and then suddenly, oh, this second baseman got traded for more. Maybe we went too far with it rather than just keep towing the line, going slower and slower down low. So maybe I, maybe something <clears throat> aggressive is in order. No, but I do think there's a – I think there's some nuance here. Like the older second basemen, you know, the, you know, Cesar Hernandez, the veteran guys were 30-ish. You know, that's where I think the 50% discount is really valid. Like Jason mm-hmm. Kipnis a couple of years ago could not get a market. You know, these older mm-hmm. second base, they're a dime a dozen and they're expensive. And the, and the overriding point is, hey, why would I pay that guy millions of dollars when I can get, you know, this young guy at league minimum and he's going to give you the same production? That's the same. You know, every GM asks themselves the same, that mm-hmm. same question, and it, but it's particularly prominent on second baseman. So then it makes you wonder, do you apply that same discount across the board or only with the older guys? And so it makes me wonder about, uh, Nick Madrigal, we'll talk about the Kimbrell trade, but maybe we overvalued him because he seems like he's a second base only guy as well. So, but do you go down 50% for him or 
is it sort of a sliding scale based on your age and so on? Because he's making league minimum now and will be a little bit for a while. And obviously, he's injured now, but next year he, he will be as well. So, so you're thinking, okay, well, if the if the overriding point is we just want a second baseman who 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 is cheap, he's cheap. So maybe you don't discount him as much. Then again, you can foresee a couple of years from now when he gets into his arbitration years, he's going to be more and more expensive, and so maybe that's not good. So you have to maybe discount those years. We're still looking into it, but that's some of the thinking we're, we're you know, we got to look at now yeah and we've also seen teams get creative with who they're playing at second base uh just based on how aggressively they can shift and how often mm-hmm. they can mm-hmm. kind of hide someone that doesn't have the best glove at second base we've seen it with mike Mustakis, with travis shaw the reds even played jonathan india there a little bit uh, there's got to be more names that i'm missing here but it seems like they're they're kind of just throwing anybody at second base these days and, and taking what they can get. I mean, Jed Lowry can still play a competent yeah. second base on like robotic knees basically at this point. Yeah. But, he's, he's 37, you know? <laughs> yeah. So it, it seems like a position that's kind of going the way of first base, but yeah. maybe, maybe even to a greater extent because you know, there's the whole like, uh, it, it's easy. Tell them wash. No, it's incredibly hard to play first base, but <laughs> But it seems like teams are treating second base pretty similarly to that. So if you're if you're looking at a position where you're both saying, okay, why would I sign this guy? Because I can, A, promote a prospect for the league minimum or whoever and, and stick him there and he'll be just as good. Or B, I can play this veteran that's never played that position before, throw him over there and he'll be just as good. Why should I pay for Cesar Hernandez yeah. or Adam Frazier? Then... I think I think there's a very strong argument to to a very strong positional adjustment. I thought we had a strong one. I was concerned it was even too strong on Fraser before that mm-hmm. trade, and yeah, we were proven wrong, I guess. Yeah, right. No, it's got to go now. Okay, observation number three: our baseline assumption about the QO draft pick value was correct. So we talked a little bit about this in previous podcasts with Trevor Story, you know, with the rental players who would be in line for a qualifying offer to the year. The assumption being if they were issued the offer, they would decline it because they're going on the free agent market. And so the team would get a draft pick. How much does that draft pick work? Our assumption was around $9 million. And so what the market said was, okay, you'll notice that Chris Bryant was traded for about $11 million in value, um, but Trevor Story was not. Um, and, you know, there's more to say about the Rockies later, but they pulled him off the market or they didn't trade him because you know, they couldn't get an offer that was better than what they think that we'll get from the draft pick. So, um, you know, and, and there's some nuance to story as well, because A, he wasn't having a great year. B, there's really no shortstop market. You know, the A's decided they were happy with Andrus. The Reds, you know, probably were scared off by the, you know, sort of underperformance of story. Not sure there. But, you know, other teams were saying, yeah, we'll try him in a different position. But if you put him in second base, and we just talked about how second base is being undervalued, then you're not going to pay much for him. So like, and he's never really been tried in the outfield. So what are you doing? So you're not going to pay much for a guy who, you know, who's going to go out of position. So they couldn't get a deal for him. They couldn't get anything that you know was was uh, at least nine million in value. So they pulled him off. And so I think we're on the right track there. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go too far into it because I know we're going to talk Rockies later on. But I do want to. Just touch on how bad I feel for Trevor Story. Yeah, <laughs> I he's mean, like, what? <laughs> yeah, there's a there was an article that came out in the Athletic just yesterday um, that kind of detailed how things were from his perspective this last week and how he's feeling now, and it's it's really sad. I mean, he's been especially these last few days leading up to the deadline. He was it was 
driving him crazy. I mean, and, and I can't blame him not knowing where you're going to end up and seeing all the rumors. And every time your phone dings, you're wondering if that's the one. And no, it's Javier Baez going to New York. It's Chris Bryant going to San Francisco, whatever. And you're, and you're staying put. Um, he, he also admitted that he took himself out of the lineup on Friday night after the deadline just because he needed to collect himself there. Yeah. yeah. Um, he he admitted that he played through a little bit of injury this season because he wanted to try and increase his trade value. He knew he was struggling and wanted to try and force his numbers back up because he, he injured himself right as he was kind of heating up. Um, and, and just looking at his numbers, I mean, his average exit velocity is still pretty solid. He's underperforming his ex-Wopa by a little bit. He has a pretty low BABIP. Uh, so I don't think that this poor performance from Story is anything is anything indicative of less talent from him but what i am concerned about for him is that if this continues if he continues to perform at this level i'd argue it could be in his best interest this offseason in a vacuum to accept a qualifying offer gamble on himself for one more season hit the market next offseason when we won't have as much competition at shortstop because this this upcoming offseason is insane as far as free agent shortstops Mm -hmm. but the Rockies have made the situation so untenable for him. He's they've done it again. They outed they they made it too untenable for uh, Nolan Arenado to the point where he had to be traded, and they did it again with Story, and then didn't trade him. And so even if it's in his best interest as a as a person financially to accept the qualifying offer and try for free agency next off season instead, he can't now. They, they've they've essentially bullied him into rejecting it and getting them a draft pick, and who knows what what that means for him in the long run. It, if it means he's one of those free agents that doesn't sign until spring training because nobody wants to give up the draft pick for him, if it mm-hmm. means he has to take a one-year deal at a very low value because, oh, we're not going to pay you a one-year deal of $20 million. If we have to give up a draft pick, we're going to bump that down to $15 million or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's... It's a rough situation for him. I feel really bad for him. And it's really not his fault at all, really, here. I mean, I guess you could say he could perform better, but with all that on your mind and and with the underlying statistics saying he's gotten a little bit unlucky, I don't think I can entirely blame him for that either. So yeah, I, I feel really bad for him as a person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and there's a larger point here about um, how it affects the person whose name has been in, was in the rumor mill, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going off topic here for a moment, but Eric Hosmer, you know, lots of talk Wednesday, Thursday about him. The Padres were shopping him. Um, Luke Voigt, Yankees were shopping him. You know, none of those deals came through. Uh, those were tougher deals to make as well. Um, but you got to think, you know, Hosmer is a clubhouse leader in San Diego. Obviously, he's not having a good year either, and his career has been on the downswing. But 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 you got to you got to wonder, like, oh my gosh, how does it look from those guys' perspective to be, hey, your owners wants to, you know, your management wants to shop you around. Oh no, he didn't make a deal for you, so you still want to play for them? That's going to be a little tricky. Mm-hmm. And, and one last point before we kind of move on in this and your through your article to our next observation, um, we, <laughs> we everybody fell for at least one fake rumor. It sounded like <laughs> yeah. this deadline. There, there was I admittedly fell for a, a bad one on the live stream of <laughs> I was just too caught up in in the whirlwind of everything and I saw there was a fake Jeff Passan account that said Bryant to the Yankees and Jesse Rogers not blaming him because I fell for it too obviously but he retweeted it. <laughs> And I, I trusted it didn't look closely enough for I, I only fell for it for about 10 or 15 seconds. So I, I caught myself pretty quick, but I fell for that one. And then there was another rumor 
uh, toward the end of the deadline when when we knew that Chris Bryant was headed to San Francisco, it took a while for the names heading back to the Cubs to come out. Uh, but there was one rumor that it was going to be Lamont Wade and Joey Bart. And right. I, I believe Susan Slusser reported, uh, I don't think she mentioned what player specifically, but that there was a player that was rumored to be out the door who believed it and was panicking about it for an hour or so before they could get actual confirmation that they weren't. And so it, it, we tow a fine line here, I think, at the site. We're trying to replicate what teams do but and how teams view players in terms of trades, but you have to keep in mind that they're also real people and that they're not just assets. They're not just their dollar value on the site. They're mm. real people with families and with with stress this time of year. And I think the story situation, as well as that Giants-Bryant situation, uh, kind of reminds you of that and, and something to always keep in mind. Yeah, yeah. And, and to just uh, add on to that point, the numbers we show on the site, you know, with a name attached, you know, that's for their services. That's not a judgment or anything like that about the per- person or the player or whatever, you know, because what we're really, it's a business transaction. And so you're saying your services are worth X amount over a given period of time. That's what we're saying, you know, and that's all. That's different than the player itself. So, mm-hmm. okay. Um, observation number four, the position player market in general, gotta say was a little lukewarm um like we didn't see a lot of overpays really really any and if anything they were came in a little bit light i mean they were still fairish but like the joey gallo trade eh, a little light chris bryant you know was fair but you know after all that that's all they got you know Baez, they had a stretch just to get pete uh crow armstrong uh the cubs did you know, the one exception was Anthony Rizzo get a little bit more than um, what our numbers say. Uh, so that was a good deal. But you could even argue that the inclusion of Trey Turner in the Scherzer deal watered that down a little bit. Even though we love Trey Turner and he's got all kinds of value, it was actually a little bit under. And so, you you know, we'd already pressed, priced in Scherzer's overpay, as we said. We hadn't priced in any sort of Turner overpay. And it was so, so maybe that gap, a little bit of gap was... A.B. Turner wasn't uh, shopped around enough. There wasn't an overpay there. So the only player that I thought was sort of overpaid a little bit was Starling Marte. But then again, as we just mentioned again, you know, Jesus Lazardo was very hard to to, um, to value. You know, he had dropped a lot, and we learned our lesson a couple of years ago from the Luis Urias trade to know that, okay, if he were a prospect now, he'd probably be rated lower. So we, you know, there's a little subjectivity here, and we want to be conservative and, and don't go too far and don't get too ahead of our skis here. But the the you know we did drop him a little bit anticipating that and then of course his major league numbers and even his triple a numbers were terrible this year so that helped it i mean that's you know, that hurt it a little bit as well but we only got down to like 20 uh, and so there was a gap there as well even with um you know um the marlins throwing in cash it still didn't quite make it so you maybe think lazardo either either Marte was an overpay or lazardo we were a little even even had a head dropped even further so that's that's an open question we'll never really know um but Overall, it was more about pitching this deadline than it was about position players. And, you know, they they didn't have to be moved, but they got a good enough deal where the teams that moved them, I think, you know, they got fine deals, but no crazy ever plays. Um, on that note, I want to talk about Joey Gallo for a bit here. His sequence of event he had a roller coaster <laughs> as far as as far as his kind of trade rumors um, mm-hmm. on. I believe that was Wednesday night. Mm-hmm. Um he, the initial deal 
the initial deal that was reported with Gallo and John King and the six prospects headed back to uh, to Texas, that was a flat out miss um, by the model. And there were a couple of reasons for that. Um, a couple of the prospects that we that on the Yankees side, just just a human error on our part, as well as a timing thing. Um, one of them had been coded incorrectly. A couple others. Um, one of our prospect sources, as they did multiple times this week, and we're not gonna <laughs> we're not gonna name names. We're not gonna rag on them or anything. But multiple times this week, they said after after a name was included in a trade, it was oh this player was upgraded in our midseason trade update that we're gonna release next week or whatever. And it's like why couldn't you release it next last week, man? We we really could have used yeah. these updated values for our own our own purposes here. Um, and, and so. In most of those cases, we did just go back and adjust those players because we care more about what the va- what the how the model is actually performing with the most accurate values than we do about you know whether we catch everything and whether we can predict how evaluators are going to change their opinions on prospects. Um, but anyway, that that first Gallo trade was a miss, and then the second one that actually happened with Yoeli Rodriguez instead of John King and a couple of prospects taken out. Um, that one was still an underpay by New York, but accepted. Um, and I am a little bit surprised that Gallo went for an underpay. And I mean, I mean, people, there are prospect evaluators who are still happy with Texas's return there. Um, but I'm surprised Gallo went for an underpay, given that it seemed like he had a lot of interest. Uh, the Padres were pretty involved. They tried to get something done with Hosmer involved, uh, reportedly. Um, a couple other teams there that were interested there. And I'm surprised that he was for an underpay as much as he was. Bryant and Baez were just, you know, a tick off. So not, not the, not the biggest deal there. Yeah. Uh, but Gallo was a legitimate underpay and a little surprising to me. Yeah. Yeah. I thought so too. And maybe the batting average was low and the TTO issue was like, eh, we're not going to overpay too much for that, you know, but um, hard to say, but yeah, to your point about that second deal, I don't know what happened there. I don't know if we're going to find out the inside story about that. But um, as far as our model was concerned, you know, it definitely looked better the second, the real one. Mm-hmm. So, um, so maybe the Rangers, you know, I'm totally speculating here, but maybe they thought, whoa, no, that's too much, and so then they pulled it back. I'm not sure. Maybe there was a problem with so, the prospects. Yeah. So I did read a report that the initial trade announcement with King and everybody involved that came out way early. That had not yet been agreed upon. Mm. The, the teams themselves were surprised that that leaked as as the steal's done, these are the guys in it. They were still very much negotiating when that leaked, mm-hmm. and the Yankees had a holdup over John King's shoulder. He's currently on the injured list with a shoulder issue, um, so they had to swap him out for Rodriguez. So that, that was what I read, at least. Gotcha. Okay. Well, certainly there was a difference in value there, because John King is, is a younger guy who is making league minimum, and Joely Rodriguez, I think, is on a contract. So that's why his value was a little bit negative. So there's about a $6 million difference in their value there. Um, both, you know, decent relievers. It's just a, you know, a money issue. Yeah. Um, okay, speaking of relievers, the big observation number five is the market loves relievers with the hot hand. Um, now, um, relievers are the trickiest position players we have to value in our model and the big question is how much do you weigh recent performance against track record when we sort of first started off you know with the model a couple of years ago we thought okay let's try track record with a little bit weighting towards the more recent year that was cons- too conservative and then we started to notice no what you've done for me lately matters more so then we tweaked it and really bumped up 
the recent performance. And that seemed to match a lot more. And so that's what we've been doing. And see, because if, if you look at the DFA list, you know, it's always, you know, I shouldn't say always, but there's a ton of underperforming bullpen arms. They try them, they don't work, and they get DFA'd, and this happens over and over again. So, and that's because it's a what have you done for me lately kind of situation with relievers. So they have short leashes, right? So we think, okay, on the downside of that, if you don't perform, you're out. On the upside of that is if you're really hot, we'll pay more for you. And that leads us to Craig Kimbrell. You know, so we thought, okay, <clears throat> even if we're overweighting, so shall we say, the current, you know, year, he's absolutely having a fantastic year, you know, and underweighting his troublesome 2019-2020, he still only got to like a, a surplus of 6.3. And that's after sort of bumping him up for, for elite status. So we thought, I mean, he's on a big contract. He's making 16 million a year. There's an option year for 16 again next year. We know that the most of the market's ever paid for relievers 18 million. So we thought, rationally speaking, you know, there's not that much surplus there. I know lots of other writers and, and things like, oh, he's going to get a haul. We thought, eh, maybe not. Well, we were wrong. He did get a haul. It is a huge haul. And um, and that's the one that surprised me the most. Um, so one takeaway is, you know, the market doesn't care about him turning back into a pumpkin. They don't care about 2019 and 20. They only care about what he can do for them now. The White Sox want to win a World Series. They're ponying up for a guy who can help them get there. Um, you know, we were, I was also thinking, okay, well, there's teams facing budget constraints. You know, Yays, Rays, they're not going to afford that salary. You know, Yankees, Red Sox, and Astros are trying to stay under the luxury tax, so that salary is not going to go well for them. Um, so we figured, okay, that's a hindrance. So who are the White Sox bidding against with those constraints? So we figured that would temper the market a little bit as well. But no, the White Sox still overpaid. So this is a little bit reminiscent of Aroldis Chapman in 2016. Like that, it's not that level of overpay, but it is a wow overpay. Um, but then on the flip side of that, we had a big underpay for Diego Castillo, who's also been, you know, a little bit more quietly, perhaps, a very strong, very elite reliever. And he's got another three years of control at a reasonable price. He's just getting into his arm years. So, and, and the Rays practically gave him away. And so, like, that's the other end of the curve. Like, okay, if it's a what have you done for me lately, you know, waiting. He's been good lately as well. So are we missing something there? Or is there a red flag there? We know that uh, I've seen, I saw a tweet from the Rays that is, um, they noticed his velocity was starting to drop a little bit. So maybe it was like, oh, let's get him out while getting's good. Um, maybe. Um, but look, it's a bell curve. So if, if you imagine like the under, uh, underpayment of Castillo on one end and the overpayment of, of, uh, of Kimbrell on the right side, everybody else in the middle was fine. Everybody else in the middle of the bell, bell curve was pretty much fair. So like, you know, a little bit of a miss on Richard Rodriguez, but that's probably because he's starting to decline after that sticky stuff issue. So they were a little high on that, but I think we were not that far off. So it's mostly a bell curve. And so you think, okay, is there something wrong with the model? Do we need to look at that? Or are these just two weird outliers? We can under, I can, from a competitive standpoint, I can understand the White Sox wanting to go for it and win big with the World Series. Okay, I don't understand Diego Castillo though. There must be something we're missing there. Um, so what, what do you make out of that? So Kimbrel, I think, is a unicorn uh, in, in a similar way to Aroldis Chapman, but maybe also a different way. Uh, Chapman, that trade was an extreme overpay at the time, and everybody knew it, but it's because the Cubs were trying to break a curse. They needed yeah. this one last piece. There was nobody else on the market like him that they could have gotten for cheaper. It was It was, you pay this price for this guy 
to hopefully win you your first ring in 108 years. And they said, fine, we'll do that. It's worth it to us. And it worked out for them perfectly. Um, so I don't think anybody, and I think we've talked in the past about how we can't hold any relief trades to that standard going forward. That's kind of a one in a million kind of thing. I think Kimbrel's a little bit different, but along the same lines. So Kimbrel's a unique case where he was a Hall of Fame reliever. And then he got pretty overworked during the Red Sox World Series run. And he saw his performance dip a little bit. And that scared some teams off as well as the qualifying offer. And in 2019, he didn't sign until I think after the season had already started was when he signed with the Cubs. And so we've seen that time and time again. When these guys get late starts to the season, they struggle. We saw it with um, Alex Cobb, with Lance Lynn, Kendrys Morales. Um, Dallas Keuchel. Certainly. Dallas Keuchel, yes. Year. There's certainly other names as well that these guys sign late in the year and they just never get it going because they didn't have a full spring training. They they couldn't ramp themselves up quite as the way that they normally would. So he was terrible in 2019. And, and then it leaked over into 2020 a bit, but it was really just the first half of 2020. I was, as 2020 splits up now, and, and admittedly 2020, tiny sample because 60-game season. But first half of 2020, Kimbrell threw six and a third innings, 995 ERA, eight walks, two hit by pitches, 11 strikeouts. He <laughs> could not find the strike. that. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> Second half, and this is after I think he was pulled from the closers role, he threw nine innings, 2.0 ERA, with four walks, zero hit by pitches, 17 strikeouts. He held opponents to a 171 Woba. That's he, so, he was back to normal. He was back yeah. to Craig Kimbrell. And yeah. we had no way of knowing, and obviously he's been even more dominant. He's having one of his one of the best seasons of his career this year. Um, we had no definitive way of knowing how heavily teams would weight that, if they would care that much about his 2019 and early 2020 struggles, or if they would just say, okay, yep, he's back. We, we believe it. We, this is consistent with his track record before those years. Those are the anomaly, not this. Um, and, and it seems like, based on this return here, and based on just how many teams were in on him, that yeah, they do they do 100% believe he's back. We had no way of knowing that. I, I don't think that's something that we can even apply to future trades necessarily, because it is such a unique case. I, I don't think there is going to be another guy like this where... You know, two years down the road, Kenley Jansen has a career resurgence, and it's oh, how do we value his trade value? I don't, I don't think there's going to be another case like this for a long, long time. Yeah. So I don't know how much we can learn from it in that respect, other than, you know, just kind of another data point that recent performance does matter a lot more for relievers than for any other position, uh, because in in part because of their volatility. And just talking about taking a little step back here from just Kimbrel alone and looking at the whole trade itself. So, so you look at that and you say, okay, we're probably a little bit low on Kimbrel if that is truly how the market was viewing him. We had no way of knowing that, but in retrospect, yes, we were low on him in that regard. Um, and then the return, we talked a little bit about Nick Madrigal earlier, how maybe we should have a more aggressive second base adjustment for him. Maybe he should get a more aggressive injury adjustment since this is two seasons in a row now. He's yeah. had a a season-ending injury, a significant one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Cody Hoyer, the third piece in that, he's struggled this year. But it's it's not just struggles. It's it's His peripherals are pretty solid. His WPA, which is one of our input stats, has been very good this year. 
it's just the ERA is kind of bloated, and mm-hmm. he was a very legitimate relief prospect, and he was very good last season. Mm-hmm. And so you could argue that A, we're low on Kimbrel, B, too high on Madrigal, we need a, a more aggressive second base and or injury adjustment, and mm-hmm. C, we were high on Hoyer because recent performance matters more. And I think even if you make those adjustments, it's still an overpay. So I am very comfortable calling it an overpay, but also looking very closely at it and seeing what we can learn from it. And especially with, with Magical and Hoyer, I would say. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. We, we don't use ERA, by the way, as, a, as an input because we think it's kind of a too noisy of a stat. We know it's been established for 100 years and whatever. But the peripherals, I think, are more predictive and more telling and take it, uh, give a true picture. And Hoyer's peripherals were pretty good. So, you know, because we're trying to get the true picture of what, you know, of a pitcher. And not and not just the noise from the defense and other situations that influence ERA. So uh, I know fans say, "Oh, he's got a 5.27 year or whatever it is," and like he's terrible. He's actually not terrible. So, but maybe <clears throat> there's something there we can look at that we might have missed. I do think that's mm-hmm. valid. Um, to your point about the injuries, you know, with uh, with Magical and the second baseman adjustment, we need to look at it as well. So there's a couple things going on there. Yes, and I agree with your summary, uh, or summary that it is an overpay might not be as egregious an overpay in the end of the, you know, as, as we first thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I have two more points on this one, um, on Kimbrel at least, and then maybe we talk about a couple of the other relief trades. Mm-hmm. Um, one is that we have, John and I have discussed kind of a, a little bit of an idea of what might be happening, because as John mentioned, all of the rental relievers, uh, and Kimbrel's kind of not a rental reliever, because, you know, if they're giving up this much for him, it seems pretty likely they'll exercise his option, assuming mm-hmm. he's performing well down the mm-hmm. stretch. Um, but all of the rental relievers were fine. You know, Daniel mm-hmm. Hudson, he's having a career year. He's been fantastic, but he didn't go for an overpay like this. Mm-hmm. Nowhere near it. Mm-hmm. Um, every other rental reliever, Tony Watson, um, Daniel, well, Daniel Norris was a little bit weird, but even he was fine, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it, every rental reliever totally fine yep it's the controllable ones that got kind of weird and kind of my personal theory for that and it's it's just a theory right now we we need to kind of tweak things and see what happens here in the future my personal theory was that teams just don't value additional years of control as highly for relievers as they might for other positions because of the inherent volatility of relievers at Mm -hmm. least if they're not you know, a Kimbrel type guy. I bet the White Sox care a lot about the second year of control of Kimbrel because right now he looks like one of the best relievers in the game. But you talk about Cody Hoyer, who, yeah, even at his best, he's he's a decent late inning guy, but not dominant by any means. And and you see that he's struggling this year, and now it puts in the question: Okay, yeah, I get four or whatever four and a half years of control left of him, but that third and fourth year, and am I am I even going to want him? Is he just going to be a middle reliever? Is he going to be non-tendered? Because who knows what happens with relievers in the future, even if they are good now. So I, I wonder if it's possible that those additional years of control aren't as highly valued. But the counterpoint that John brought up when I when I brought that up to him was the Tampa Bay Rays, because, mm-hmm. of course, they're causing problems for us still. <laughs> because they seem to have prioritized additional years of relievers. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at the Willie Adamas trade, Drew Rasmussen and uh, J.P. Fire Eisen, those guys both came with a lot of team control. They, they liked that. Nick Anderson trade, same deal. So... It's it goes back to that question again. Are the Rays the outlier here? Are they onto something that we're not that we're not and the other teams aren't, or are, is it something else entirely than that kind of initial theory um, would suggest? 
Uh, do, do you have anything to add there? Uh, no, it's just I'm sighing heavily because this is such a this is such a pickle. I mean, there's an Occam's razor part of me that says, you know, we saw the other evidence that most of the time the relief model is fine, and once in a while it's uh, curious. So we do think it's worth taking a closer look at. I definitely agree with that. So we've got to figure out how how those two conflicting points somehow square up. Um, uh, you know, most like most likely we can justify the the um, Kimbrel trade as an overpay. The other guys were probably a little high. Um, I'm still struggling with the Diego Castillo trade because if he's been so great, why wouldn't they have shopped him? Why didn't get the overpay on him? That was weird, you know. So, um, so maybe that actually fits. Diego Castillo would fit your theory that okay, maybe they don't value those three extra years of control because they expect volatility, expect a downswing. Um, that makes sense. But then, you know, what are the Rays doing? Are they just getting guys on the upswing and then selling them at the peak before the downswing? Is it just them doing that? You know, we've got to look a little closer at these. These are very sort of, there's a whole bunch of swirling waters here. Yeah. Um, well, last point I wanted to make, and this is in response to some of the only negative feedback we, we got on Twitter this deadline was from the White Sox fan base, and I don't hold it against them. When you're excited about your team going all in, pushing in chips for the best reliever available, one of the best relievers in baseball, it, it's not you don't want to see uh, a tweet that's getting a lot of traction saying that your team overpaid for him. Mm-hmm. That that's not what you want to be hearing, and so I understand where it's where a lot of this is coming from, but I want to and I went ahead and tweeted this out in kind of a, a manic tweet thread later that night because <laughs> I, I was just so ex- exhausted. But um, I, I want to be clear that just because it's an overpay, and, and I think we have agreed that even after some of the adjustments that we maybe would make to these players in retrospect, it's still an overpay. But just because it's an overpay doesn't mean it's a bad deal for the team. Right. Uh, it means that if you if you trusted our initial values on Magical and Hoyer, theoretically, you could have added a, a medium third piece, and that would have been a fine package for Jose Barrios, which, and, and we've talked about why we don't necessarily take those values as, as the law of the land anymore for Madrigal and Hoyer, but just in theory... You know, you, you add those two in a third piece, get Barrios, that's a much more impactful piece, a much more valuable piece, and a much more affordable piece than Kimbrel. And so that's where we're seeing it as an overpay. Just you could have gotten more for those pieces, maybe. But if Kimbrel's the guy you want, and these pieces clearly aren't helping you in 2021, you know, Hoyer has had a bloated ERA and Magical's out for the year, then it's not a bad move to trade those guys. Again, we think maybe you could get a little bit more if you went elsewhere, but if this is the guy you wanted and these are the guys the Cubs wanted and you really think this is going to push you over the hump and and the White Sox do look like maybe the best team in the American League this season, up there with the Astros probably, um, if this is what you really believe you need to get over that hump, then do it and and don't look back. I mean, I I tweeted out that if the Rays, if they, I I don't think the argument that oh, the, the Cubs don't regret trading Torres for Chapman. I don't think that's a strong argument, just because, of course, they don't, but it was a unique situation there, and trading for Kimbrell doesn't guarantee that he's going to lead you to the World Series. There's a whole range of outcomes where he doesn't, and you've just missed out on a couple really talented young players to get him. 
Um, I, I tweeted that, you know, the Rays can trade Wander Franco for Craig Kimbrell. That's a massive overpay. But if they win the World Series this year, they're probably not too upset about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an extreme example. They might be upset down the road, especially because the Rays, whatever. But they're, they're still going to be pretty satisfied with it because it got him a World Series. That doesn't mean it was a good trade or the most value they could have gotten for him at the time. Or yeah. excuse me, excuse me, let me rephrase that. That doesn't mean it wasn't an overpay or the most value they could have gotten for him at the time, but you could still conceivably view it as a good trade, quote unquote, because it got them where they wanted to get. So I, I don't don't conflate those two. We're not saying that we hate this so much for the White Sox and, oh, they're so stupid. That's not at all what we're saying here. It's no. just that, you know, the numbers didn't quite line up, but they're welcome to do what they think is best for their team. Yeah. So, you know, I've seen GM's tweet, look, <clears throat> in the offseason, you make sort of rational trades, right? Because it's more of a neutral environment. At the deadline, competitive juices start to flow and people get a little bit competitive and their priorities change a little bit. So, you know, the surplus value concept that we work generally works in a neutral market where, as you tweeted, all the actors are, are acting rationally. In some cases at the deadline, they're not acting as rationally, or at least they're maybe maybe put another way, they're prioritizing, they want to win a world championship and I don't care how much it costs in surplus. So, you know, that's essentially what's happening here. And we have no way of knowing ahead of time which teams are going to be the ones or which players are going to be viewed as the ones that get that massive overpay. Mm-hmm. Um, you could say like, oh yeah, the White Sox are definitely going all in, but you could also argue, yeah, they got a really young core. They might want to keep some of that around and, and manage their finances a little more responsibly and extend this out for five years. They don't mm-hmm. have necessarily that same incentive that the Cubs did of the long, long World Series drought where they kind of had to push all their chips in right there. Yeah. Yeah. And we have no way, so we have no way of knowing which teams are going to be more or less rational, which players are going to be treated more or less rationally. So we have to just kind of do our best. We apply a playoff boost for these top of the market players that can very clearly that that a team is very clearly acquiring with October in mind and, mm-hmm. and expecting to get that extra month of elite production from them. The Bryants, mm-hmm. the Kimbrels, even mm-hmm. Starling Marte. These guys, mm-hmm. they they get a playoff boost, mm-hmm. but that's kind of all we can do. We don't want to get too much more subjective than that because then. At that point, you know, if, if we had a larger playoff boost, then Chris Bryant is an underpay. Yeah. Javier Baez is an underpay. All right. these other deals are, are way off just to correct for the Kimbrel deal. And, and that's not the way you do it. You don't you don't tune everything to the outlier. Exactly. There's a term for that overfitting. You, if you mm-hmm. overfit on the wrong one, then it throws everything else off. So yeah. you have to fit to the bell curve. And that's why we track everything. We track 250 trades for the last two years. That's the bell curve. And we're tracking to that. So kind of kind of to wrap things up here, um, we, we admit to some potential mistakes on all three players in the Kimbrel trade, but also recognize that even correcting for those, it still looks like an overpay. We're still not exactly sure what to make of Castillo. It could be a, a decline in velocity and some inconsistency. It could be the Rays selling high on kind of peak value there, not va- teams not valuing those additional years of control quite as highly. Um, it's likely the Rays see something in JT Shagwa, which is another yeah. thing entirely because they're just geniuses when it comes to relievers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for those other two kind of controllable reliever trades that weren't quite as close, Richard Rodriguez, we talked about how we had to downgrade him because he's had some struggles the last few weeks and they seem to have coincided with the foreign substance crackdown, especially for a guy like him that doesn't get a lot of swings and misses. Um, 
mm-hmm. so that he he's got a decline in his value and we maybe the rest of the model wasn't aggressive enough on declining him for that recent performance maybe that should have been something in the model maybe that should have been something more subjective on our end uh, not exactly sure what to make of that one either uh but it's it's clear that he was on the downward trend there mm-hmm. and then the last one i want to mention is john curtis mm-hmm. who is another one of those like he he's been very good this season and last season um, and he has team control, but he's otherwise unproven. And and again, if we're questioning how highly teams value team control, then you know maybe maybe a quick adjustment there makes that deal look a lot more fair. It was already accepted by the model, but it was a bit of an underpay um, mm-hmm. by Milwaukee. They gave up a backup catching prospect, Peyton Henry, for him, mm-hmm. um, and we expected him to go for a little bit more than that. So those those are kind of the four guys that stood out to me. And you can lump Cody Hoyer into that mix as, as really the main controllable relievers mm-hmm. that uh, were dealt and that had some some issues on their valuation and we're going to be taking a long look and making some tweaks and seeing what happens with the relief kind of our relief system here because it's clear that that's that's the most inconsistent part of our model right now yeah we might even look at like pitch mix like is it mm-hmm. guys who might lose velocity who are candidates for that because they've been throwing hard for years and they tend to lose velocity at a certain point is it you know coming you know what you know we might have to get into granular details like that so um but look i, I don't think it's broken i think it just needs a tweak yeah yeah i think the relief uh, the rental relief market clearly shows us we're doing a lot of things right here the fact that almost all of those were pretty perfect um value wise yeah okay right, so to kind of to kind of recap all that we touched on here first of all the model did really well <laughs> at this deadline and has done really well historically. Uh, the ones that we missed, we can kind of explain away um, either via adjustments that we know we need to make or just, you know, kind of throwing our hands up and saying, yeah, that player was tough to value. Get him next time, I guess. Um, it was a seller's market for that top of the line starting pitching. There were some overpays up at the top there, but after that kind of Rios cliff, Everything looked pretty fair. Teams weren't overpaying for Kyle Gibson's uh, second baseman. You don't want to be one. <laughs> if you don't want your top trade asset on your team to be a second baseman, because you're not going to get a whole lot out of him. Uh, Story wasn't moved because his offers on the table didn't beat what we had as our qualifying offer value, that 9 million figure uh, that they'll be able to receive for him. If he declines that qualifying offer and they get a draft pick. And finally, relievers are confusing. Maybe we need to weigh the hot hand a little heavier, um, we need to take a lengthy look at that uh, mm-hmm. part of the market. Uh, part of the market, excuse me. Yep. Okay. So now that we've gotten through that, uh, let's kind of hit on some of the deals, some of the bigger deals that we haven't discussed yet. Um, I'm honestly not sure where we want to start here. Do you have one that we haven't gone too in depth on that you want to get to? Let's start with the Cubs. Bryant, okay. Baez, Rizzo, all those guys. Yeah. So we we started with Kimbrel. I think we've kind of set our piece on that one. Uh, we're, we're done there. Let's let's go to Rizzo because I think this is. Um, I, I think if we talk Rizzo, we can also talk Yankees here and kind mm-hmm. of the interesting stuff that they did this deadline. So, mm-hmm. Rizzo, obviously a great career as a Cub. I was I was pretty surprised. Um, well, okay, I'm not gonna say I was surprised, but <laughs> going into this week, I was not expecting them to trade Rizzo. I was pretty on the fence about whether they'd trade Baez, and I was expecting them fully to trade Bryant. And that's because, you know, Bryant, it seems like he's been on the outs for a while now, and they've been talking about him pretty extensively since the offseason. 
Baez, I thought, was just too difficult for teams to evaluate. We discussed that a lot in, in a few uh, previous episodes about how his inconsistency, his poor plate discipline, make him a really confusing piece to, to trade or trade for. And then Rizzo, he's kind of Mr. Cub, you know? I, mm. I was... I expected them to he, him to be the one that they kept, especially since he wasn't having a great season. Um, they wouldn't have been able to get a ton for him, so I figured they might he might be the guy that they keep around even through a rebuild on an extension, just because he's a he's a lifetime Cub. Well, as soon as we got through that first like day day and a half or so of the crazy, like it felt like we had three days of deadlines, didn't it? Like yeah, <laughs> like on, on deadline day you're getting moves pretty much around the clock and then a whole bunch bunched up right at the buzzer. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt like the two days leading up to the deadline were just like that. There were just moves consistently. There, there was no break in a day where, where you could go an hour without a trade happening, it felt like. So as soon as we got through that first day, that Wednesday, where it was just starting to go crazy, it, that's when it started to feel like, okay, yeah, this is just going to be a nuts deadline. The Cubs are going to push all their push not, – not, excuse me, not push all their chips in, but they're going to – cash in on all their chips, I guess I should say, and uh, move all three of these guys, all three of these rentals. Um, so starting with Rizzo here, as they did with um, Baez as well, and I was surprised they didn't do with Kimbrel, but they did it with Baez as well. They did it a little bit with Andrew Chafin when they sent him to Oakland. Uh, they paid down Rizzo's entire contract to send mm-hmm. him to the Yankees. And that seemed like one of the Yankees' top priorities. They did it with Joey Gallo with Yoeli Rodriguez with Rizzo and they got some portion of Andrew Haney's contract eaten. We don't know exactly how much yet, um, but they are right up against the luxury tax. They were determined to not go over it, and in return, it cost them some better prospects. So I think this this was the best case scenario for both sides here. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, if you're a Yankees fan, you hate to see your team, you know so scared about the luxury tax and about paying the tax overage and draft pick penalties, whatever you're so you hate to see them so scared about it, that they're giving up future talent um, just to facilitate deals. But from the Yankees perspective, it's kind of what they had to do if they really did view that as a hard salary cap. And from the Cubs perspective, it got them some higher upside prospects. It got them some really good talent in all of these deals that they did this in. Um, so I, I really liked that strategy on their end. I was a little surprised they didn't do it with the Giants or with Kimbrel. Uh, I, clearly, I don't think they needed to do it with Kimbrel based on the return that they got for yeah. offloading his whole salary anyway. Yeah. And maybe the Giants were just comfortable enough with salary that they'd rather take it on and mm-hmm. give up lesser prospects. I think so. Yeah, um, yeah but I, I think they did really, really well in general to get some upside pieces in a pretty thin system um, by moving. And, and you don't usually see rentals go for super high upside pieces here but really all three of these deals um rizzo got i'm i'm blanking on the name in that one i'm, I'm pulling it up right now so um, alcantara and Vizcaino. yes and alcantara is a very high upside piece they're mm-hmm. a really really talented young outfielder they got pete crow armstrong and the Baez deal who's a former first round pick and there's kind of he's a little bit polarizing nobody really knows if he's gonna hit or not but if he does He's a fantastic defensive center fielder with speed. That's a big get. And then Alex Canario, who's probably the, I'm not going to say the worst of the three, but the least exciting of the three. But he's also a very high upside boomer bust type prospect that they got mm-hmm. um, in exchange for Chris Bryant. So I think they did really, really well to add some talent to the system. Um, after doing something pretty similar in the offseason when they traded Yu Darvish for a bunch of teenagers. Um, so yeah. It seems like they're targeting upside right now and not necessarily caring how far away from the big leagues it is. And so on the one hand, 
that could be great for them. They could have a lot of these guys click, and suddenly they have one of the best farm systems in baseball, and and a few form or a few future superstars on the way. But it also could mean that this rebuild is going to take a little longer than the average rebuild because all these pieces that they're targeting are so far away. Yeah, but look, I mean, you know, the priority right now when you're at this point, the first sort of step in the rebuild is to acquire talent. Mm -hmm. And they've done a great, Jed Hoyer has done a great job of doing this. I mean, I was just updating the, in the back end here, the behind the scenes, the Cubs prospect list. And it was pretty barren like two years ago, but then Brendan Davis, Brendan Davis has started to heat up and go up prospect lists. And so he's at like 39. You still got Miguel Amaya, Brandon Marquez. Those guys are in the 20s. They had signed Christian Hernandez. He's, he's 21. And now they got Pete Crow Armstrong. He's 17.5. They had drafted Ed Howard. He's 16.2. Kevin Alcantara is 11. Preciado had gone up. To, I mean, they've got a lot of double-digit guys. My point is, oh, boy, you could just keep adding to this farm. and It's looking stronger and stronger here. This is going to be a top-10 farm. So, you know, they're on their way. Great job by Hoyer. Mm-hmm. And... I agree with that completely. Well done by Hoyer. And he still has a couple pieces to cash in either in the offseason or next deadline in Wilson Contreras, Kyle mm. Hendricks. Mm. Um, is there is there one I'm missing? No, it's pretty much just those two left now. Huh? Maybe in half. I think. Yeah, if he can if he can recoup <laughs> yeah. any value by yeah. starting to, you know, play well. Um, but I also want to give credit to Cashman and the Yankees, because even though they had to pay higher prices for guys in order to get their salaries Eaton, they didn't really give up any of their premier talents. They gave up some really talented players, but they didn't give up Oswald Peraza. They didn't give up Anthony Volpe. They didn't give up uh, Davey Garcia or Clark Schmidt, who their stock has fallen, but they're still kind of their next in line starting pitching depth right now, and they, they still have some talent in this in there for sure. Yeah. But they didn't have to give up any any of those four who I'm sure were widely sought after in these trades and so i think that's that's a good job by them and it kind of speaks to the depth that their system had uh, before this week yeah they continued to trade from you know the middle maybe they crept up into the upper middle but they didn't trade from the top you know jason dominguez is untouchable um alexander vargas has some buzz so they didn't trade him luis medina has a little buzz so they, they kept all these guys so good for them and and to do it by staying and still stay under the luxury tax kudos to cashman i agree mm-hmm. all right so now so that's that's kind of Yankees Cubs right there. Um, let's do you want to talk about the Padres and and what didn't happen there? Yeah. So AJ Preller, who we've talked so much about and has been kind of, you know, he's got some magic pixie dust going on. He's always you know befuddling people and he's a, the biggest <laughs> the biggest celebrity executive right now i'd argue is aj preller yeah so it's gotten to the point now where it's kind of a, a running joke right you think oh, okay preller's gonna get him like whether it was scherzer or gallo or offloading hosmer he was gonna work it and 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 but none of those came true he struck mm-hmm. out he's run out of magic pixie dust so like whoa that's a story you know and to be fair you know i think he's running out of bullets you know mm-hmm. when we look at his prospect list if he doesn't want to trade abrams for Camposano, um, you know, uh, there's interest in Robert Hassel, but he's young, you know, so he hasn't quite proven himself yet. So we have him at 25. Maybe he wants to keep him. Mackenzie Gore's stock has dropped quite yeah. a bit. You know, he's really a falling knife. And so teams are like, I don't know. This is kind of like the Lazardo conversation we had. Like, you know, so what has he got to trade? After that, there's a huge cliff and you're down to the twos and ones, you know. So how is he going to make any magic happen with guys that – you know, are very low value here, unless he's like yeah. trading, you know, a guy on the injured list, you know, maybe Morehan. Um, 
you know, maybe he trades Ryan Weathers, who's shown some promise, and he's in the teens, you know. So, but he's not, he's running out of ammunition. That's, I think, what's happening. And even even Weathers has some question marks. He's yeah. only he's not going deep into starts this year. That's that's kind of an inning, innings management thing. But it's like, okay, <laughs> is he just going to be kind of a multi-inning reliever, or or just kind of one of these like swingman types? What is he going to be a starter that can go deep into games long term? Don't really know what he is right now. Um, so yeah, they're they're top chips there. They either are entirely off limits, which I'd say is the case for Abrams. Uh, I, I'd imagine he would consider Camposano, but Austin Nola hasn't been great this season, and, mm-hmm. and maybe Camposano is really the only other option they have at catcher long term. Uh, but then yeah, after that it's like it's hassle and some damaged goods kind of. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and then on the other end of that, they're they've got to be running out of money. I mean, the, the roster is pretty clogged right now by having both Hosmer and Will and Will Myers mm-hmm. on it, not really performing well, making a ton of money. Mm-hmm. So, really, you've lost a lot of flexibility. You got to keep those guys on the roster. So if you do add another bat, it means you're shifting somebody. You're either shifting both of them onto the bench a lot of the time, or you're, you're losing a lot of positional flexibility on your bench because those got Hosmer's first base only. Myers is really should be corner outfield only. Mm-hmm. Um, just they're they're clogging up the roster. I think the only real option that he had for adding a hitter at least was to find a way to offload Hosmer. And it's something I I can guarantee he's going to look very heavily into uh, this off season, both Hosmer and Myers, if he can find a way to, to give up a little talent to get out, out from those deals because they they have some weaknesses. Yeah. That rotation hasn't worked out the way that they hoped it would. Blake Snell has been a mess. Denelson Lamette, can't stay healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're kind of lucky that Joe Musgrove has been as fantastic <clears throat> as he's been. I mean, kudos to them for recognizing the breakout. But yeah, they're they're gonna need to do some work this off season, and I don't know how it happens without getting one at least one of Hosmer or Myers off the roster. Yeah, and uh, good luck doing that. Hosmer, we mm-hmm. think, is minus 58. So, like, you know, I – okay, when you hear rumors, you got to raise your eyebrows. Don't believe everything you read. I mean, maybe, you know, the, the journalists are so used to Preller working his magic that they think, oh, he's going to get Scherzer. Oh, he's going to offload Gal. You know, but, you know, some of the reports I saw were, like, they were trying to um, get Gallo and and – you know, Hosmer was a uh, part of that deal. But if you're the Rangers, okay, you're asking me to take on that huge albatross of a contract, which we have at minus 58, who knows where they, but it's, it's probably bad. And it's a first baseman only kind of situation here. Who's in decline. Who's got negative war. You want me to take on that? Who's still owed $68 million and give you Gallo. So like just using our math, you know, that's a gap of like in the nineties at least. You yeah. know? So like, okay, you're gonna have to give me CJ Abrams and Hassel if I'm gonna do that, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> like Or you're eating a chunk of <laughs> a chunk of Hosmer's money and at that point you're just making Gallo more expensive just to get out of a few bucks instead yeah. of the whole thing and it's it it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like yeah. I, I don't it do, I don't I don't deny that those discussions probably happened, that they might have tried to get creative with something in there, but I didn't. I don't think there was a great way that that would have worked. I think, I think there's a few teams that would make sense for Hosmer, in, in one of the more traditional, you know, pure salary dump. Here's Hosmer, a little bit of money and a prospect, for nothing. <laughs> uh, you know, you could see that working in maybe Colorado, um, maybe a reunion with the Royals if they 
also find somewhere to deal Carlos Santana, but he's been really good, and they seem like they like him, and I have no idea what the Royals are doing right now. <laughs> so it, there's a couple teams that are maybes, but it really looks more like it's just going to be somewhere where, you know, they, they cut him, you know, the Orioles maybe. I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do, but they need to find something there with one of those two guys. It's not going to be easy, but they yeah. they need to. No, but if I'm the Tigers or the Orioles or the Pirates, yeah, I'll take that contract if you give me Abrams or, you know, yeah. <laughs> Hassel and, or Camposano or something. Yeah, I'll buy those prospects. It's essentially what you're doing. Um, I, you know, I think that would be super smart of them. But um, I don't know. I mean, Preller's going to have to bite that bullet, you know, yeah. in the offseason if he really wants to make that happen, clear that roster space. Because, yeah, I agree with your points. Those two guys are clogging, clogging up the roster. And then at that point, if you are giving up, you know, Hassel and Campusano or something along those lines, if you're giving up that kind of talent just to get out from this contract, then really the only way you can make upgrades is spending more money. Right. And I know that's part of it, but, like, you can't trade for another, for a good, like, mid-rotation to frontline starter if you're giving up these prospects to get out of Hosmer. You'll pretty much have to spend money on Max Scherzer or something, which, I mean, not outside of the realm of possibility. There's, There's four very good future Hall of Fame starting old starting pitchers that are going to be free agents in Granke, Verlander, Kershaw, and Scherzer. And so you figure, you know, maybe they can get them on a more affordable two or three year deal uh, since they are so old, but they're still not going to be cheap. And it's yeah. at that point, you're just kind of shuffling those pieces around and it's not as much of a long-term picture that you're seeing there. If you're <laughs> trading, you know, two of your top young prospects to get a 37 year old starter. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, no, uh, it's he's going to be a I mean, Preller's always the guy to watch, but especially mm-hmm. this offseason, he's going to be the guy to watch because he's going to need to work some of his magic this time. Totally. OK. All right. Who's next on our list here? Let's talk about just kind of the, the sellers in general. I think that's really what we have next. Um, we, we talked a lot about the Cubs, but the Nationals yeah, and the yeah. Twins did very well. And uh, I, we have the Marlins in this list. I think I want to keep the Marlins separate for a minute. Uh, they're really, really interesting in, in the spot that they're in right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Nationals and Twins, I... I think they both deserve gold stars. Yeah, hats off, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you when you decide to pivot, you know, pivot strongly. Don't go half-assed. Just go for it. And that's what Rizzo did. That's what the Twins did with Brios. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> Especially in the Nationals' case, like, sell everybody. I mean, Jed Hoyer did that with the Cubs too, absolutely. But like, Rizzo's not used to doing that. But he mm-hmm. just like dove in at first. So good for him. Mm-hmm. I did see some slight criticisms about the Scherzer-Turner deal. And as we mentioned, it was a little bit light on our values. Um, it was really two main pieces in Kybert Ruiz and Josiah Gray, who are very, very good pieces. And they've been kind of, at least in Ruiz's case, he's been blocked in Los Angeles for a couple of years now. And, and you kind of expected him to get traded eventually. Um, because Will Smith is one of the best catchers in baseball. They also have Diego Cartaya, another very good catching prospect on the way. And Ruiz is almost major league ready. So it's like, all right, there's something's got a something's got a budge here. Um, So he was pretty, he made a lot of sense. And Josiah Gray, very good starting pitching prospect. And and the Dodgers have already had to turn to him this season because of all the issues with their rotation. But you figure if they're getting Scherzer, don't need him as much. But then those two secondary pieces, um, I'm trying to pull them up right now. Um, They're nothing special, really. No, Um, No, they're throw-ins. Yeah, I, I'm still having troubles pulling them up because I typed, I typed Control F for Trey, <laughs> and 
And that just made me learn how often in this recap article I wrote the word uh, streak, which has <laughs> T-R-E-A in it. <laughs> um, yeah, so here we go. So that's uh, Geraldo Carrillo and Donovan Casey, who are just kind of, I guess they're lottery tickets maybe, but yeah. you really would have expected a little bit more in those last couple pieces. Um, yeah, I mean, when I, I saw a tweet from one of the journalists saying, oh yeah, the other two are sort of, you know, mid-level prospects. They weren't mid-level. They're at the bottom mm-hmm. of the list. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not like the Dodgers have one of those Padres-esque systems where it's like the big guys at the top and then a massive gap. They have a lot of those mid-tier guys that might have made sense in here. It might have made it like even a slight overpay at that point if you're talking about, you know, Andy Pages or or Bobby Miller. And, and apparently they really wanted to hang on tight to Bobby Miller. He was one mm-hmm. of the guys that they're kind of listed as untouchable there. Uh, but there's plenty of names in that system <clears throat> that are maybe more interesting than Carrillo and Casey. So I don't yeah. really know. I don't want to quibble too much over the third and fourth pieces of a deal that got them a really good catching prospect and a really good starting pitching prospect. But that that's really the lone criticism you can have there because otherwise they didn't, they didn't stay glued to anything. Uh, they didn't, I mean, I guess the one piece that they could have moved still was Josh Bell, but yeah. who knows how much of a market there was for him. Yeah. Um, he, he still hasn't really been performing to the level that his name would suggest. Um, but but they got, they got a, they got something good for Jan Gomes and and Josh Harrison, who like Mm -hmm. nobody wanted, you know, a year ago. So kudos. They got some, you know, lower end prospects, mind you from the A's, but, but you know, there's some value there. Drew Millis has been hidden, you know, Mm -hmm. so like they got something out of nothing on those deals. And their system was one of the worst in baseball and and something needed to give there. And so it's either, okay, push literally everything in, trade Cade Cavalli and whatever you can get for Carter Keyboom to try and win now and then you're into a really horrible long rebuild or do this and it's time to restock a little bit. And even if not every prospect you get back as a superstar, they're still going to slot into your top 10, 15 in your organization because that's just how thin it is right now. Yeah. So they, they did a good job here. Um, there's not really much left outside of Josh Bell that's really tradable. I mean, you could squint and see if, if Victor Robles, if there's any kind of market for him. Yeah, his stock is um, dropping quite a but bit. But they're not trading Juan Soto anytime soon. He's no. really the one that they want to build around. Honestly, they couldn't trade him right now. He's worth too much. Yeah, <laughs> no right. team could, could pay that price for him right now. But even, I think even a year, year and a half from now, he's still going to be there. He's still going to be the guy that they're trying to lock up and, and build this next good core around. And I think... By getting two guys in in Ruiz and Josiah Gray, um, that's that's a decent start there to to maybe a quicker turnaround because those two are pretty close to the big leagues. Yeah, and um, yeah, they've always been a team financially who gets creative, right? They do a lot of deferrals. They did that with Scherzer as well. Um, you know, they're saving some money with Trey Turner going off the books because he was going to be a, a little bit higher in arbitration next year. So they've got a little money to spend as well. So they could get creative. Like, there's a team that you might think, oh, yeah, we'll take Hosmer, <laughs> you know, if mm-hmm. you throw in Capisano and Hassel or whatever. So, like, uh, yeah, go for it. So, you yeah. know, we'll see what they do. The one real blemish they have left is Steven Strasburg, which is very yeah. sad. But yeah. his, his performance his injury risk and and just constant not even injury risk it's just constant injured presence <laughs> um and that massive contract that's not looking great for them that's really if, if anything stops them from a quicker turnaround than most it's going to be that it's going to be him and his contract yeah um, but which is... conversely if if he somehow is able to come back healthy and effective again 
he could be a major X factor in a quicker turnaround there. So he's really the biggest name left there. Not that they're going to trade him or anything, but he's the biggest one that's kind of going to dictate their future, him and extending Soto. Yeah, so he's, um, if you look at our highest lowest list and click on lowest uh, in the median, uh, if you switch it, switch the arrows, he's right at the top of the list. Worst contract in baseball, sadly. Um, they got nothing out of him, and he's only getting older, and he's not getting any better, and now he's got surgery on top of other everything else. So, mm-hmm. oh, boy, that's terrible. That was a terrible, terrible signing. Um, it is worth also got, noting. Yeah. It's worth noting that part of why he's now at the at the top or bottom of that list, however you want to look at it, is just because there are fewer years remaining on some of the other previous giant right. albatrosses, the Miguel Cabrera, Chris Davis, Albert Pujols. Right. Um, right. The, the books are closing on those guys, so now right. he's kind of the, the lone guy. I mean, Giancarlo Stanton's up there as well, but... He's yeah. at least a more productive and yeah, he's got <laughs> Yeah, I can't believe I'm saying this, but he's a healthier player than, <laughs> than Steven Strasburg. Yeah, yeah, and I just wanted to add that you know Patrick Corbin's underwater pretty well, pretty mm-hmm. significantly as well, because he's just been in decline and not very interesting and but he's getting a ton of money so he's way overpaid so they've got some albatrosses on the books i mean but they haven't really complained about that to their credit um so i don't know to what degree that's going to be an overhang on how creative mm-hmm. they can get so we'll see mm-hmm. okay and then twins we briefly touched on barrios earlier but this is a great return for him we had his value at 42.9 million um, and then Austin Martin, the main piece in this return, we had at 42.6. For, so one for one, it would have been yeah. pretty reasonable. And then they also got Simeon Woods-Richardson out of it, whose stock is falling a tiny bit, um, uh, which is one of the adjustments we had to make, which is why we couldn't... Yeah. That's why that trade was one of the ones we omitted from our final mm-hmm. tally there. Mm-hmm. We had his value at 22.3, but after an adjustment by... After one of those <laughs> after-the-fact adjustments by a prospect <laughs> source... Um, he's down to 14.5, but that's still, you know, that's still an overpay of about 14-ish, mm-hmm. and that's a nice get for them. I mean, these are two guys who are reasonably close to the major leagues. I believe they're both in double-A, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, the Twins aren't going into full rebuild mode right now. They want to extend Jose Barri- or excuse me, they want to extend uh, Byron Buxton still. They haven't gotten much traction in that, but they want to do it if they can. Uh, they still got a whole lot of talent left on the roster. You know, Jorge Polanco is having a fantastic year. Mitch Garver looks like he's back. Luis Arias is very good. Max Kepler is still pretty solid. They they were able to see debuts of a couple of their top prospects in Alex Kirilov and Trevor Larnock, and they've had some ups and downs. In Larnock is struggling a little bit more now, and Kirilov is on the injured list, but he was performing when he was healthy. And so the future doesn't look too horrible in Minnesota. It's It's not looking like the beginning of the end there i don't know if they're necessarily competing in 2022 but they have a lot of talent left so getting two guys with with real star upside in martin and richardson or excuse me woods richardson um who are who at least have some level of proximity to the major leagues that's a pretty good get for them and that's not even counting a couple of the other pieces they were able to offload yeah and the one thing i i really liked that they did was they stuck to their guns on that deal like you know kept seeing reports like oh the twins are asking for the moon oh the price is too high oh they're asking for two several you know and they got it <laughs> you know like they, they didn't budge at the you know they they're like no this is the price if you want them and so Toronto ponied up so they got their price so good for them and we also had them getting more value than they gave up in the Nelson Cruz deal uh Joe Ryan and Drew Strotman two close to big league ready starters I mean Ryan is off with uh Team USA in the Olympics right now 
Uh, but these are both guys who I think Strotman is in AAA. Ryan would be in AAA. They could be in line for later season debuts, if not early next season. Um, they didn't trade Anderson Simmons, but that was a little bit expected. There's not a huge market there. And a factor that I didn't necessarily consider until more recently was he's been pretty open about not being vaccinated. And if you were trading for him, that could create some complications as far as, you know, the, the 85% number that you need in your clubhouse to have loosened COVID-19 restrictions. So maybe yeah. that's a little bit of a, a minus in his favor. If you're on the borderline there of that 85% number, and you trade somebody who is vaccinated for somebody who isn't, then suddenly, you know, maybe you have to start wearing masks again and, and following stronger, stricter procedures. And so maybe that's not something teams wanted. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. That's another sort of wrinkle in this market, right? We don't we don't know to what degree that's a factor. We're not really modeling for that. Yeah. Um, and we're also not modeling for the quote unquote clubhouse chemistry factor, mm -hmm. you know. And some people think, oh, that's a value. I think it's been largely debunked, you know. Um, but you know, maybe there's a little bit once in a while, but I wouldn't give it too much credit. I will mm -hmm. note, um, you know, as a footnote to the Starling Marte trade, he did get into a. Uh, um, a fracas yeah. with one of his teammates, Monte Harrison. And I don't know if that's why they traded him, but, you know, I did read a report that Monte Harrison was on the outs as well. So he's probably not mm -hmm. long for Miami. So uh, Miami probably had an eye on that clubhouse culture one way or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, I think in general, Marte has gotten good clubhouse reviews. So I'm a little less inclined. I'm, I'm not trying to make any bold assumptions here about a, a fracas that all we know is that it happened. We don't know anything about what it was about. We know no punches were thrown. We know Monty Harrison had to be held back. That's it. Um, so I'm not going to make any assumptions here, but I, I'm not sure. I think he was, I think Marte was on the outs anyway. Maybe that made it a little easier to trade him, but I think he was on the outs anyway. And it's not oh, like yeah. Harrison is in fantastic standing as a no. player anyway in Miami. He's looking yeah. more and more like a bust. Yeah. Um, and they did anyway, try. To... They oh, did ahead, try to extend Marte, and because mm -hmm. he, he declined the offer, then they they said, okay, Plan B. Well, we'll see what we can get for him, and they did a good job. Yeah, yeah. Um, back to the Twins, though. They were also able to, you know, make a smaller deal, move Hansel Robles. Um, is there someone I'm missing here, or were those the three that they made? Um, I believe that that's it. Taylor Rogers got injured. They shopped Josh mm -hmm. Donaldson. They shopped Kepler. Didn't quite get what they wanted. So, but they tried. Ah, they did. Uh, they did trade Jay Happ to the oh, right. Cardinals, which was interesting. And uh, maybe we can use this to kind of transition into the Cardinals. I, I have like <laughs> one more quick point on the Twins first. Um, okay. Just that their financials aren't looking incredible going forward. If they are trying to extend Buxton, because he's not going to be super cheap. Um, and and they did shop around Kepler. They did shop around Donaldson, like you said. And those two, those could be two guys that they continue to uh, shop around, even if they're not. They're not rebuilding. They're not giving up or anything. But I think those are two names who we could see in a lot of rumors this offseason, um, pending the level of interest in them in the offseason, of course. But, uh, yeah, going back to the Cardinals there. So they offloaded J-Hap onto the Cardinals, and we had him at negative 2.1. And they also gave some cash. We don't know exactly how much that was. Um, but in return, they received John Gant at 0.0 .0 and Evan Sisk at 0.1. So not nothing too crazy there, but... I don't know what the Cardinals are going for here. They picked up Hap and they picked up John Lester, who was also underwater. They gave up actual value for Lester and didn't get any cash back. We had Lester at negative 2.5. They didn't get any cash to cover his salary. And they gave up Lane Thomas, an outfielder at 2.7, who used to be a legitimate prospect and, and 
hasn't done anything in the big leagues, but there's at least some prospect value left there. So I'm not sure. I mean, I know they needed warm bodies. I know they needed innings eaten, but I don't, I don't think they're contending. I don't, I don't <laughs> they, understand it. <laughs> they love the old guys. They love the old gray haired pitchers. Look at Adam Wainwright, what they've sort of somehow gotten from him. Um, nice. There's a Cardinals way about that. I think they, mm-hmm. you know, and they still have Gotti Molina who's what 40. I don't know. They, they let, they like the old grizzled veterans. Um, so that's all I can figure. <laughs> yeah. They have, uh, they have Wainwright, they have Hap, they have Lester, they have Wade LeBlanc. <laughs> they, they're, they're going yeah, for one the rotations in, in modern history. It's got to be, right? Yep. I, I, I don't know. It's not something to make too big of a deal out of. They didn't give up anybody too crazy in either of these deals. I mean, Gant, we have him at zero. His, he performed earlier in the season as a starter, but it was very clearly a mirage. He was walking. He's still walking as many batters as he strikes out that's never a way to succeed and, and the re- regression monster is kind of coming for him already but he's been good as a reliever and he has a year and a half of team control left so if the twins do move him into the bullpen and and he gets some of that back then he's a piece that they could hang around hang on to for next season as a reliever as a, as a decent middle relief arm um, and then evan sisk is just kind of a relief prospect for their troubles it seems like and and on the on washington side moving lester for lane thomas i mean there's, there's a little bit of interest there in, in Thomas. There's there's maybe a little bit of upside left in there. And, and even if he is nothing, I mean, it, it costs them nothing. They got out from under cash yeah. in exchange for the ability to, to give this former decent prospect a chance. Yeah, so there's another win for, for Rizzo, at least on paper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm not not entirely sure. <laughs> Cardinals um, got to feel a little bit for Nolan Arenado, who really wanted to get out of, out of the losing ways in Colorado and now St. Louis is hovering around 500. I believe they're under 500 right now. Um, but I, I don't really know what their long-term... They're right at 500 as of the time of recording. So I don't know what their long-term picture is looking like there. I, I'm, and I'm not sure they do either. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they got a couple guys coming on the farm. Um, you know, they got the Cardinals' way. They like to make more out of what, you know, what little they have. So yeah, I think they'll be fine. You know, there's, and, you know, they won a World Series with a team that won less than 90 many years ago. So, like, they always do something, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right, so just checking time here. We're at an hour and a half. Um, I know we have a lot to say about the Rockies still. Um, and I yeah. want to briefly touch on the Marlins and Angels. But I, I think those are probably our last three for uh, Sounds good. for today. So uh, let's let's just start with the quick ones real quick. Um, so the Angels, I don't really know what they did either. I mean, they, they traded Andrew Haney for a couple of relief prospects, and that opened up a spot in the rotation for Reed Detmers, who is one of my favorite prospects in baseball. I've, I have such a soft spot for those kind of pitchability prospects, which is bizarre for me. I don't understand why I do, but, <laughs> but you know, those command-first prospects. I do too, that, yeah. That they just post like consistently elite walk rates in the minor leagues and in college and whatever. Yeah. Um, and they could uh, turn into Kyle Hendricks or Shane Bieber. They're those, yeah, exactly. Those exactly. I was big on, not to toot my own horn here, but I was big on Shane Bieber when he was mm-hmm. a prospect. And then, you know, he adds a couple ticks of velocity and he's a stud. I was also big on Brady Rogers, a Astros prospect who flamed out entirely, but <laughs> this Reed Detmers is kind of along those lines. So he's an exciting arm for them. And he was just drafted last year and he's already making his big league debut as we speak. So that's the main reasoning behind offloading Haney, who was a rental 
um, and, and one of the most inconsistent pitchers in, in baseball for his career. Um, it seemed like he put together a string of a couple good starts and, you know, the peripherals would be looking, looking pretty great and then just blow up for the next few and finish the season with an ERA of four and a half. It, it seemed like he did that every year. But they did that. They traded Tony Watson. Um, they did not trade Rasiel Iglesias, which was surprising because he would have gotten a pretty solid return, I think, especially given how the rest of the relief market went. He was really the next best mm-hmm. name on the market after Kimbrel, and that mm-hmm. isn't to suggest that he would have gotten a return anywhere near Kimbrel's because he is just a rental and, and non-elite still. But he's very good, and he could have gotten them a little something, and they decided to hang on to him. They hung on to Steve Cichek, which surprised me. Yeah, you were pushing for that trade. I was, I was. <laughs> um, and, and it's not like they had too many other pieces to sell off anyway, but it's just a little weird how they decided to toe the line when they really don't look like they're in any kind of spot to contend right now. No, but I, you know, I will I'll give them credit for this. They got, they tuned, I saw a tweet, they turned um, two pitchers into five pitchers. Yes, I know, quality, quantity, but, you know, their recent draft, all they did was draft <laughs> pitchers. What do they do in trades? Five more pitchers. I mean, they are just loading up in pitching because mm-hmm. clearly that's the need. Um, so hopefully it's a total throw spaghetti at the wall. Hopefully a couple of them stick strategy. That's what they're doing. It's all I can make of it. You got to feel a little bad for some of the pitchers that were previously in the angels organization. Cause they need room for all these guys. They have 25 new pitchers now, right? I mean, I mean, yeah. you can take out the two that they just traded, call it 23. And I know injuries happen and whatever, but that's, there's going to be at least 10 or 15 <laughs> guys that are not, that are either getting released or not getting yeah. their contracts yeah. renewed. and Totally. Yeah. Which is rough. the downside of all this, you know, after the draft and after the deadline, you know, a whole bunch of new acquisitions are, you know, and, you know, it's going to push out a lot of guys. You're going to see a lot of, you're going to see DFAs, you're going to see releases of minor leaguers. And that's the downside of this. Mm-hmm. All right. Then quickly, the Marlins. Um, so they traded Starling Marte. They traded John Curtis. Uh, they had previously traded uh, Adam Simber and, um, and uh, Corey Dickerson, he was the one in that trade as well. Um, am I missing anybody else um, from Miami? No, people expected him to trade Richard. Oh, Blyer Adam Duvall. Him. They traded. Oh Adam yeah, Duvall. Adam Duvall, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, oh, and Amy Garcia. Okay, so they yeah. traded most of their pieces that weren't locked down, most of their rentals. They hung on to Jesus Aguilar. They reportedly talked to him about a two-year contract extension, so that would be for a year of arbitration and a year of free agency. But it was pretty below market and didn't seem to be too much traction there but they do still like him and, and there wasn't a huge market for first base anyway so it makes mm-hmm. sense that they hung on to him but otherwise they capitalized on a lot of relievers and other like free agent signings that they had made so good on them that's a good rebuilding thing that the pirates also did i i'm un- it's unfortunate we don't have time to talk about the pirates because i think they had a really really good deadline as oh well. yeah mm-hmm. um but uh the biggest thing the biggest like kind of nugget of trade information that came out about the Marlins was actually after the deadline, um, leading up to the deadline, Craig Mish had reported that they are, they were pushing very hard for a long-term center field option. Uh, you know, Cedric Mullins and Byron Buxton were two of the names he mentioned at that time. Obviously they didn't get anything done, but there were reports that they had discussed um, a deal with the angels, which would be flipping pitching prospect Max Meyer from Miami in exchange for outfielder Brandon Marsh. So it's a prospect challenge trade, kind of reminiscent of the mm-hmm. Zach Gallen Jazz Chisholm trade mm-hmm. from a couple of years back. Mm-hmm. And there was one other name in that report, which one? Oh, Brian Reynolds of the Pirates that they right. pushed hard for, uh, but the asking price or the yeah the asking price from Pittsburgh was too high for him. 
So it, it seems like they're pretty clearly, they know what they need. <laughs> they know yeah. that they're prioritizing center field. They had a glut of outfield prospects, and none of them have worked out at all. I mean, you know, the, the book isn't closed on Jesus Sanchez yet, but uh, but Lewis Brinson, Monty Harrison, those guys are kind of done there. Yeah, well, and where did they come from? The Yelich trade, which was a total mm-hmm. bust. They have mm-hmm. gotten absolutely nothing from the Yelich trade, which was one of the biggest uh, flops. And, and we're, you know, side note, we might be doing a retrospective series of articles on some of these, you know, historical trades. But, you know, Yelich's value was like 117 or something if, you know, so before the model had really kind of developed. But, but, you know, so don't take that number to heart. But it was huge. And Brinson was in the 60s or 70s, and Harrison was in the 20s, and, and they had, um, who else came in? Asan Diaz was like and in the 20s. And Yamamoto. And Yamamoto was sort of the last one. But but none of those guys have worked out. They're all bus. And that's yeah, Yamamoto's hurt. gone already. Yep. Diaz is, and Diaz, uh, Harrison, and, and Brinson all look like they're on the out. Or, excuse me, uh, Diaz, Brinson, and Diaz. Or, yeah. Harrison? I'm sorry. I'm confusing myself here. We've been going over an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, all, all three other prospects there look like they're on the outs. Yeah. Um, kind of getting their last shot this season before they really overhaul things. But they do have an impressive amount of young pitching built up, both at the major league level and, and at the upper levels of the minor leagues. And so it does make sense that they're going to flip from some of that for yeah. um, a long-term outfield solution and maybe start, start trying to win games again. I, I know they had fun last year. And nobody expected them to make the playoffs the way that they did, especially given how obliterated their roster was due to that COVID outbreak that they had. Um, and, and of course, they don't make it into the playoffs anyway, if, they, if not for the expanded playoffs last year due to COVID. But they liked that feeling. They're going to be pushing to do it again this year, or excuse me, next year probably, um, or at least starting to do so again next year. And I think that does start with flipping some of their prospects for a long-term solution in the outfield. I'm calling it now. Josh Lowe of the Rays. <clears throat> would be a good fit there. Um, so, and the Rays, of course, have so many prospects and, you know, I'm not sure where they're going to, well, maybe they want to save him as a replacement for Kevin Kiermeyer, Maybe not. So I could be wrong there. Um, but, you know, the rate, you know, anytime you're looking at a challenge trade, the first thing, you know, who's got the best farm in baseball, who's got the most loaded amount of prospects, it's the Rays. So that's one mm-hmm. name, you know, mm-hmm. not to get too far into it, but uh, they'll find somebody. And to me, a name like that makes more sense than a Brian Reynolds who has yeah. less team control, um, yeah. especially since it doesn't look like they're especially close to contending. But I mean, with their with that pitching staff, it's really just a few pieces, and then they at least start to look interesting, start to look like a wild card team. Yeah. Okay. And then last one we want to get into was the Rockies. I'll let you. Uh, <laughs> I'll let you take over here. Wah wah. Sad trombone noise. Oh my <laughs> God. What are the Rockies doing now? We've talked extensively about the Rockies, right? You know, um, you know, their GM resigned. A few AGMs resigned. Their analytics staff all walked out. They, you know, they got a skeleton crew. Doesn't really know what they're doing. They've got a meddlesome owner. Oh my God. It's just a soap opera. You know, Bill Schmidt. This is the first time he's. You you know, he's the interim GM. It's the first time he's ever had to deal with the trade deadline in, in, in that chair anyway. And so he didn't trade Trevor Story. He didn't trade Daniel Bard. He didn't trade John Gray. Like, the only one he made was, I believe, Michael Gibbons. And okay, yeah. fine. That would, you know, reasonable deal there. But that's it. <clears throat> you're a rebuilding team, and you're just going to let these guys walk? I mean, you missed a golden opportunity to at least stock your farm somewhat because you've got a pretty bad farm. And you're not doing it? Oh, my God. We're talking about one of the worst teams in baseball with three, honestly, three of the better trade assets in baseball. I mean, Story, we, we talked about why his market never fully developed, but he's still Trevor Story. He's still yeah. a superstar. Um, 
Daniel Bard may not be a big name, but relievers were going pretty well at this deadline, and he's a pretty good one if you take mm-hmm. him out of Coors especially. And then John Gray was having a great season, and, and given how weak the starting pitching market was, he would have gotten a, a good return. Yeah, he probably would have so, gotten more than Story, yeah. Yeah, so we're talking one of the worst teams in baseball that had three top chips that are all rentals, or excuse me, two of them are rentals, and Bard is a late 30s reliever yeah. who, with one more year of control. Yeah. And ultimately all they ended up adding to their minor league system that wasn't the the only new player they ended up adding was right-handed pitcher noah davis at 0.7 million in trade value because the other name in that michael givens deal was case williams who they had just traded to the reds (laughs) in the offseason for robert stevenson for some reason (laughs) so they reacquired williams who was who was already in their system at 0.1 yeah yeah and (laughs) added noah davis and there's no way to look at that deadline even given We've given them a little bit of slack because, you know, first year for Bill Schmidt being in the driver's seat and they have a tiny analytics office and they picked early in the draft and and the draft being right next to the trade deadline. They had to kind of focus on that for a while and turn off trade talks and, you know, stories performance hasn't helped and and whatever. We can give them all the benefit of doubt in the world. It's still a massive loss on their end of not not doing anything for their future at, at this deadline, at a crazy deadline where everyone was making trades except them. And I wonder if the other GMs on the other side of the phone kind of knew this and thought, okay, we're going to underbid for story because we don't know if they're going to take up my bid or not because you don't know what you're really dealing with. And we've heard other mm-hmm. other AGMs and say, well, I don't know who I'm talking to over there. Yeah, yeah. So so like they don't – so they're of course they're going to underbid for story, right? And maybe Schmidt thought, okay, well, that's the best offer I get. Like I don't know if how, how good a poker player he is, right? So – you know, maybe uh, you know he could have gotten more than the QO offer, you know, the nine million for Story if he did just played his cards right. And same with Gray. But I got the sense that they have no idea what they're doing there. I'm sorry, but it's it's clearly evident. It's a mess. Yeah, I did see some quotes from Schmidt after the fact that were a little bit concerning. So he was he was talking about how happy they are with their pitching staff, and I can I can respect that. You know, Herman Marquez is a stud. John Gray is pitching very well this year, and it seems like he's figured out Coors. They're going to try to extend him, and it seems like there's some mutual interest there. It wouldn't shock me if that got done. Kyle Freeland has historically been okay in uh, in Coors. I'm looking up his numbers right now. I genuinely don't know how well he's been pitching. Eh, eh, And then Austin Gomber has shown some flashes. He was really the main major league piece they got back in that Mm -hmm. Nolan Arenado deal. He's shown some flashes um, of, of also being pretty successful in Coors, and so that's that's four pretty good starting pitchers, and that's something that they just haven't yeah. had historically as a franchise. And so I can I can get behind that, and they got a couple interesting relievers, whatever. And it, but the problem was their 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 lineup is horrible, and they haven't done anything to really address that at all. Their farm system isn't all that great. There's not a whole lot of reinforcements coming right now, and. Bill Schmidt was quoted saying that he really believes in this team and that they're going to add some veteran hitters in the offseason and, and they think they can contend next year. And this is just shades of the whole, oh, our internal projections say that we were going to win 96 games. And then they yes. went on and lost like 92 or something like that. Yeah. So I'm so concerned about the future of that franchise. I had high hopes for Schmidt and maybe this is just the kind of situation where, you know, damage control. He has to kind of talk up the organization um after after an admitted failure at the deadline but 
I, if if this is truly what he believes, then he's probably not the best guy to be in charge right now. Yeah, and I kept seeing quotes that concerned me that said, "Oh, I'm just trying to put this, put the best team I can together." Like as if he's only focused on this year, as if he's thinking yeah. they're going to contend this year, as if that's mm-hmm. his job. Like you know, you got to look at the bigger picture. Like I don't get the sense that he has this. Uh, maybe I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know. I can't even. I can't imagine. And you know, I he's a loyalist to Dick Montfort, the owner. Um, yeah. and, and so maybe that's the problem. That's my suspicion anyway. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, and who knows if he's going to stick in this, in this interim GM chair for, for mm-hmm. longer than this, but my gosh, they need a strategy there. Like, oh my yeah. gosh. And that's always the worst when it is an owner that's meddling because that's the hardest thing to get out from under, you know, if, if you have a bad GM or whoever, a bad scouting department, whatever, just fire him and get a new one. But you can't fire the owner, really, can you? You, you gotta. Yeah, right. It yeah. would take him voluntarily deciding to sell the team, and who knows how long that would take, or if it would really ever happen. So. Yeah, I, I I've made this point before, and I know we're gonna uh, over time, but one last point. They really think about the the entertainment factor. They like butts in the mm-hmm. seats. You know, they love their stadium. They have a. a, a, a genuine and i'll give them credit for genuine sort of connection and marketing with the fan base and so on they they like to put on a good show they like to put on a good product and they're thinking like that i think more so than strategically in baseball terms so it's like okay let's have a fun time at the the park who would have got trevor story okay right he's a, he's a star. They, they think about the star quality and, and and the fan appeal a little bit more perhaps than they should though yeah there's there's no better product than winning there's no better experience than playoff baseball and that should really always be priority number one it's okay if you place a little more value in in the butts in the seats and the entertainment factor and so that's why you hang on to charlie blackman when you maybe had an opportunity to offload him or something yeah, along those yeah. lines or you know you keep john gray even if you can't extend him whatever but, but i don't know i yeah i don't it, it's too many things at once here and, and they didn't even trade cj crone no right so uh, i was by comparison, Jed Hoyer made a quote saying, "Look, we looked at you know teams that were in our position in the past, the the you know the Tigers, the Phillies, and they waited too long and they fell off a cliff and they had long rebuilds. We didn't want to make that mistake. And good for him for saying that. Complete opposite of what's going on in Colorado, where they're like, yeah, sure, we think we could compete. Oh yeah, no, you're falling off a cliff, folks. <clears throat> I'm sorry. And and you can make a lot of the same arguments with." with the Cubs situation as with the Rockies. I mean, they have a very loyal fan base. Clearly they sat around for 108 years of garbage. Uh, They have a very loyal, large fan base. They have a historic stadium. Maybe it's not the prettiest in baseball right now, but it's got that historic quality. It's, it's a legendary stadium and and entertainment should be at the forefront of theirs as well, but they, they know how to get there. They know the best, the best type of entertainment is, is being good in that, Sometimes you have to be bad for a couple years to be good for hopefully more years. And... You, you have to, yeah, you have to make hard, painful choices. That is mm-hmm. what the Cubs are doing. That's what the Nationals do. And that's what I'm giving credit for. The Rockies are, it, I, I don't know if it's, they're afraid to make those hard choices, but they seem reluctant to for reasons that don't carry water. Mm-hmm. All right, I think I think we've done it. There's so many trades we didn't. Like I said, I wish we could have talked about the Pirates a little bit more. I, they did, maybe not excellent. I mean, they could have gotten a ton if they did move uh, Brian Reynolds, but they still have plenty of time to do that, yeah. plenty of team control. The Red Sox were a little interesting. They made kind of some fringier moves. The Braves made a lot of those. They, they got four outfielders that 
and like two of them can't really play the outfield, so that's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, um, right. The A's did some stuff, stuff. Yeah. Yeah, the A's pushed in some pieces. <laughs> yeah. Got a whole bunch of rentals in. Yeah. Uh, it, it's there's so much happened. We could go on another hour, hour and a half easily, but we're we're not gonna do that. Um, yeah. it, it's time to start calling this one quits. But first, before we do, let's uh, let's go ahead and update you guys on what to expect from us going forward in the next couple months here. So we are gonna be taking pretty much the entire month of August off. You might hear a little bit from us here and there, but we need a break. <laughs> this, yeah. this was the busiest time of year for us. This podcast is the last thing that we're doing trade deadline related. And then, you know, there's nothing really to talk about as far as trades go, because teams aren't allowed to make them anymore. Um, that being said, though, we will have some interesting new content coming back late August, September, most likely. Uh, we have been floating the idea for a while about doing articles and or podcasts of kind of retrospective trades. So, you know, going back, plugging in the numbers fr from at the time of the Aroldis Chapman trade and seeing what it would have looked like if our system had been up back then. Or, you know, maybe the John Lester for you Cespedes trade or, or any of those other... Archer! Archer! Yes, That'll the be Chris fun. Archer one we've gotten so much. <laughs> I know John's been wanting to do that. For yeah, it should. <laughs> so if you have any suggestions for those kind of trades, feel free to shoot them our way either on the site or email us at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com on Twitter at baseballvalues. Um, we're, we're super open to those. They're going to be... They're not going to be the most perfect things because we don't have access to some of the inputs that we use today um, for those historic numbers, but we're going to try and get them as close as we can, and it's really just for fun anyway, so it doesn't yeah. need to be perfect. Um, but yeah, that's something that we have planned, um, and then obviously we're going to have to perform, <laughs> as the season ends, we'll perform our end-of-season updates and as well as you know playoff updates, so on and so forth, so that by the time the off-season starts, all player updates will or, or excuse me all player values will be updated to account for the entire 2021 season and postseason as well as potentially some of these adjustments that we talked about making in this episode to the yeah. model so. and of course we'll add new draft picks to the prospects mm -hmm. uh for each team and of course you can continue to play um what if on our simulator because a lot of fans of teams who were sellers were thinking okay well this year's done Let's see what we can do in the offseason. I know the numbers are still sort of as of today, August, you know, early August, but you can just sort of you know, imagine what they're going to be a little bit in the offseason. So feel free to do that. Of course, we're always open in that regard. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And, and as Josh, you know, mentioned, we'll be doing a lot of sort of work behind the scenes in September so that we're up and running, you know, in October with uh, the latest and greatest. So you can start thinking about the offseason. And the more, majority of prospects are pretty updated, and I'm sure, you know, John says he's going to take a break, but he, this is his <laughs> he he's not going to take an actual break here. I'm sure he'll continue to update prospects as they, uh, as as our sources update them. Maybe not right at the moment, but he'll continue yeah. to tweak those. I'm sure he will. I know him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so so prospect values won't change too drastically in the next two months. So at at least for those types of deals, you know, yeah. they won't be super. Um, super different than they would be at the end of the season here. So have some fun with those on the simulator for sure. All right. That being said, that will do it for this week and for this trade deadline. I, I say this every time, but this time I mean it especially. Thank you all so much for listening and for using the site. It, it means the world to us. That something that we love and pour our heart and soul into that a, a lot of other people like it and love it as well. Um, if you have any comments or questions, like I said, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. As I said, 
taking the rest of August off for the most part, but we'll be back either late August, early September with some of those more fun ideas and to kind of prep for the off season. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the rest of the season. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.